you have a minute? Do you have a minute? Do you have a minute? These were some of the first words that I heard upon entering the Delib camp, what I like to call the rebel camp organized by Extinction Rebellion in Berlin the last week. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of My Climate Diet, the podcast where I'm shedding the pounds of greenhouse gas emissions. I'm Lisa Pettibone, and I've joined the rebellion, the Extinction Rebellion. Today, I'm going to talk about Rebellion Week, 10 days of international action that just ended, and what happened in Berlin. But first, what is Extinction Rebellion? This broad social movement started with an open letter signed by 94 British academics and politicians in The Guardian in October 2018. The group has since spread internationally through its decentralized organization, which borrows tactics from groups like Occupy and others. XR, it's commonly referred to as, has three major demands. First, tell the truth. Governments need to acknowledge the facts of climate science and declare a climate emergency. Second, act now. XR calls for a halt to biodiversity loss and net zero carbon emissions by 2025. Third, beyond politics. XR calls for national citizens' assemblies to come up with strategies to reduce carbon emissions. So the most recent major action that Extinction Rebellion has organized was Rebellion Week. It took place in countless cities from London and New York, Rome, Madrid, Chicago, and Montreal, to Islamabad, Cape Town, Mexico City, and others. Here are some of the highlights from Rebellion Week that I've called from the Rebel newsletter over the past few days. On October 9th, rebels in six countries held a vigil for the 164 known activists in the Global South who were killed last year trying to protect their countries from extractive industries. Rebels also acknowledged that these are only the activists we know to have died in these struggles. Countless more die every week without being named. British MPs, members of parliament, have said that XR has changed the conversation. In Cape Town, protesters staged a die-in outside an African oil and power conference, highlighting the toxic nature of the industry. There were mothers' nurses in London and elsewhere, and a protest to shut down London City Airport, including one protester boarding a plane to tell the truth and a Paralympian climbing on top of another plane to stop it from taking off. Times Square in New York was shut down for two hours, after which protesters moved to Fox News headquarters. Tens of thousands of protesters took part in actions in cities worldwide, leading to thousands of arrests, over a thousand in London alone. Several celebrities took part, such as Benedict Cumberbatch in London and Michael Stipe in Rome. In Berlin, there were dozens of actions. Over 3,000 rebels protested outside the environmental ministry, calling for a declaration of climate emergency, which has not happened yet from the German government. The head of the ministry's climate change office met with the rebels, and although he didn't agree that we're in a climate emergency, he did say that he respected their form of protest. Perhaps the largest action in the city last week 
was that protesters occupied and held the Große Stern, a major traffic circle in the Tiergarten that surrounds the Siegessäule. They occupied it for 58 hours as one of the opening actions for the week. Protesters, under the name of Plan B, B as in buzz, 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 also occupied several bridges and shopping areas throughout the city. The rebels I talked to found the protests to be inspiring and uplifting. They also talked about how positive interactions with the police were. One activist said he thought the police just gave up in their attempt to clear out the Glusastan, and he was surprised at how well the police played along with protesters, some even taking off their helmets to chants of or you're more beautiful without your helmet. Another protester told me that the day after seven hours occupying Potsdamer Platz felt for her like coming off drugs. The high of the engagement, seeing mothers nursing their babies in the middle of the street and drawing energy from everyone who'd come out lifted her up in a way that was dashed after she left the protest and emerged on a sidewalk saturated with shopping-obsessed tourists. In general, though, the mood was high, energy was good, and my sense was that the protest went more smoothly than planned and with more demonstrators than expected. But what I want to focus on today is the camp. I visited for several days last week, and I spoke with Carl Fuchs, one of the camp's organizers, about how it's organized and why it exists. I recorded our conversation, but I did so using my cell phone microphone. So the sound quality is pretty good, but you will occasionally hear rebels, other sounds of the camp, as well as the wind and the city in the background. What is the camp? We um, see the camp as as very, as as the special place of connection between all the, the, the people that uh, are involved in XR. We have international guests. We have here the Nordic camp. We have a lot of Swedish, Norwegian, Danish people. We are um, pretty um, internationally uh, here right now. And also between the, all the groups on all of Germany, they come here and we can, we can host people for one thing, which is very a beautiful thing to, to do. So we we are here for basically also two things so the the deliberative democracy um, mm-hmm. the model of the citizens assemblies um, and people's assemblies that we try to well test out in a way we don't really do the citizens assemblies here because it's not um, really no don't it's, we, not, we, we can't even say that we do a model of this because it's 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 really um, needs much mm, much broader now because now it's more now it's the definition of a people's assembly mm-hmm. rather than a citizens assembly because we are inside our some little bubble in a way mm-hmm. no but we want uh, the citizens assemblies are, are there to be inclusive for the whole of the society so so there's a long way um, in a way but um, that's that's the one thing and also here we are very much caring about the, the our um, culture of regeneration so this is very important for the whole movement that we have an emphasis that we need to care for each other if we want um, to uh, build a society that is resilient 
um, towards the, 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 the future and the, the coming Herausforderungen, challenges. the challenges ahead, that we are resilient towards them. And I think this is, can't be underestimated and how beautiful this functions inside the, the whole movement right now. In Berlin, Extinction Rebellion won a court case, giving them the right to set up camp between the German Chancellor's office and the Leichstag building for a week. The Delib camp, as organizers call it, was intended to connect people, allow them to recharge after long hours of demonstration, and test out deliberative methods XR calls for in its third demand. Uh, we can change as a society as a whole, and, and we have um, here the possibility to test out the tools how to mm. do so. The camp was a massive undertaking with an organizational core of 15 people setting up infrastructure for 1,500 campers and many more visitors. This included securing the space for 700 tents, according to their last count, setting up latrines and running water, electricity to charge mobile electronics, a vegan kitchen, and space for workshops and downtime. In addition, the camp has a special tent for families, an information tent to share details about the movement and help organize volunteers, for example, with a poster for those offering hot showers to share their contact information with campers, and a stage for music and larger presentations. This camp was all organized separately from the protests to maintain its special legal status. When I talked to Carl, he wasn't sure if it was the only camp that was run worldwide, but he said it's very likely unique as it is fully legal. One of the most important functions of the camp, though, is as a place of regeneration. I'll let Carl explain this. So here we are very much caring about the, the, our um, culture of regeneration. So this is very important for the whole movement that we have an emphasis that we need to care for each other if we want um, to uh, build a society that is resilient um, towards the future and the, the coming um, Herausforderungen, challenges. the challenges ahead that we are resilient towards them. And I think this is, ha, can't be underestimated and how beautiful this um, functions inside the, the whole movement right now. One big question mark though, was the climate impact of the camp infrastructure itself. I was impressed by its use of composting toilet, the organic vegan food provided by the kitchen, and of course, the thousand plus campers living for a week in tents. But Carl told me that one problem they had, because the legal approval came on such short notice, was that they couldn't connect to the electricity grid, which forced them to use relatively low efficiency electricity generators. They haven't calculated their carbon footprint yet, but I offered to help with that once the hectic phase is over. Carl, if you're listening, I was serious when I made that offer. Calculating carbon emissions has become sort of an obsession of mine. So the camp was, for me, a really motivating and lively, exciting place. As I said at the beginning, one of the first things that happened when I just walked into the camp 
was one guy pulled me aside, asked me if I had a minute and asked me and over a dozen other volunteers to move the plastic walkways they had about three feet to protect the grass. This showed the sense of SOS or self-organized systems in such a dramatic way for me. And I have to say too, when I first entered the camp, I thought, wow, I'm an excited, passionate observer, but it's hard for me to see my role in the rebellion because I have a job, because I have a small child and a husband. It's tricky to find the time in my busy schedule to really take part in a full-throated way. So it was especially exciting to run into a former colleague of mine on Friday who is a member of Extinction Rebellion families, a subgroup of Extinction Rebellion with children like me who organize their engagement in a family-friendly way. They meet on the weekends, bring their kids, and share in the childcare. I'm very excited to get involved with them in the coming weeks and months. And this leads to my biggest takeaway from this past week. In talking to Carl and also the other protesters, it was repeated to me several times that Extinction Rebellion lets you set your own limits and your own level of involvement. At the protest level, this means that there are different levels of protest particularly related to engagement with the police. Some protesters are committed to locking themselves on to immovable objects or gluing themselves to objects or the street itself. Other protesters who aren't comfortable with this level decide amongst themselves how high they want to escalate involvement with the police. In addition, protesters join small groups of eight or 10 to communicate with each other whether they want to escalate at a certain point in time. Finally, in every demonstration, as well as with the camp, there are individual liaisons with the police. So at the camp, for example, this was Carl, who over the past few months has met with his counterpart in the police, built trust and an open line of communication to share what's going on with the camp and make sure any police concerns are addressed. This was particularly interesting for me as a perfectionist. I kept feeling I should be giving more than I can or am able to. I also got sick over the weekend, which meant there was one time I wanted to go visit the camp that I really wasn't able to. But everyone I talked to really showed what a silly notion this is. They said, no, it's not about thinking about how much you possibly could give. It's about what are you willing and able to give? That's the level you need to set. And set it also keeping in mind your regenerative needs, that we're not robots. We're humans and we're imperfect. Yes, we might be able to go out for eight or 10 hours. Yes, we might be able to chain ourselves up to a Extinction Rebellion boat overnight. But Some of us might have work the next morning, so we can only commit three or four hours, or maybe just bring cookies by and share a few words of support. Whatever we can give, that's what they'd like from us. They don't want to ask for more. So this is something that was really motivating for me, as well as relaxing. It said, yeah, 
the world's going to hell in a handbasket. We all need to take to the barricades. But even that can't be a 24-7 job. What has this all led to? Well, it's interesting that during Rebellion Week, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel finally released details of the country's new climate action law, fleshing out a package originally presented on September 20th, interestingly enough, the day of the first global climate strike a few weeks ago. The good news, the bill includes targets for different sectors, energy, transport, industry, agriculture, and buildings. This is important because the country is almost certain to miss its ambitious 2020 goals because its energy transition has so far focused really heavily on electricity, which has led a failure of particularly transportation emission cuts. So this comprehensive approach is really necessary. Also puts the existing climate goals into law, keeping them in place after Merkel leaves office. The bad news is this bill was promised by the governing coalition in 2018, so it's a bit of a case of the government finally turning in a long-promised assignment. In addition, the country's emissions reduction goals, which seemed ambitious several years ago, are starting to look weak in comparison to the scope of the problem and particularly the demands of groups like Fridays for Future and Extinction Rebellion. For example, the climate action law pledges to reduce the country's emissions by 55% from 1990 levels by 2030 and pursue carbon neutrality by 2050. Extinction Rebellion, by contrast, has called for net zero emissions five years before Germany wants 55% reduction, so by 2025. At any rate, ambitious or not, this bill is, has only completed the first step in its journey. Now it's going to the Bundestag to be discussed and voted on. What's giving me hope this week? Being a part of XR, going to visit the camp, and going to demonstrations. It's been really motivating for me as someone who usually stays at my desk and podcasts about what we need to do to see people who are even more passionate and active than I am. It's also given me hope to talk to my students this past week about XR and about climate change in general and to see their enthusiasm and their willingness to make changes. This week, I want to thank everyone who took part in Rebellion Week for your commitment to ramping up political pressure for climate action. I talk on this podcast about the concrete actions I take as an individual to reduce my carbon footprint in the hopes that I can inspire others to reduce their emissions as well. I have to admit that far more important than the actions that we take as individuals and collectives are the actions that we can take to reduce our carbon footprint as a species. As nice as my homemade deodorant is, it's not going to make the difference that a carbon tax or an end to fossil fuel subsidies will. So I'm going to keep doing my part at home, but I'll also see you on the barricades at the next protest as well. Next week, in the spirit of regenerative culture, I'm going to take next week off, but the following week, I'm going to look at plastic. Why isn't more of it recycled? What kinds of plastic can be recycled or not with the technology used here in Berlin? And what can I do to reduce my plastic footprint? Finally, 
I want to talk about plastic's effect on the planet in terms of carbon emissions as well as other impacts. Because I don't know about you, but I've heard so many competing things about plastic that it's starting to really get on my nerves. There is a fairly strong movement in Germany to live plastic-free, but at the same time, I've seen so many newspaper and other articles saying that reducing plastic is not actually that impactful in terms of climate change. So I want to get to the bottom of this by looking at how important cutting plastic is to dealing with climate change. Do you want to see me live? Well, I'm going to be performing on Friday, October 18th in Neubrandenburg as part of the Document Art Film Festival. I'm very excited. In addition to some films on sustainability, I'm going to be there to talk about this podcast and the experiences I've had going on a climate diet for, for the last six months. You can go to documentart.org for more information. Hope to see you there. Thanks also to David from Kvens for letting me use his music. And thanks to you too. Since I got back from my summer of house cleaning, I've been humbled by how many people listen to this podcast. This has been a labor of love for me, and I appreciate you giving me a listen. Feel free to drop me a line with your climate tips, things you like or don't, or just a kind word at lisa at myclimatediet.org. You can also follow me on Twitter at Lisa Pettibone. And don't forget to rate My Climate Diet on Apple Podcasts. That makes it easier for others to find me and start their own climate diet. Because if everyone went on a climate diet, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Oh,